Welcome to After Hours, an interview podcast series from Lady. I am Laura McClaus Holmes, a fashion and cultural historian. When I sit down to do these interviews, I try to create a space that is intimate and allows vulnerability. I always like to think of them less as interviews and more as totally personal conversations. That's why the sound often isn't perfect, and if the conversation scampers off into diverse directions, I allow it, just as I allow it to go on for however long feels necessary. Today's conversation with Rick Gillette actually went on for over four hours, sprawling across multiple locations, through a meal, and covering all aspects of his life. A makeup artist, hairstylist, interior decorator, and now the owner-curator of a gallery, Rick Gillette's life has always revolved around the pursuit and creation of beauty. He's followed his muse through immense career highs and lows. Originally from Rome, a small city in upstate New York, Gillette became interested in makeup and hair as a teenager. After beauty school, he developed a following at salons upstate before heading to New York City in the late 1960s. In great detail, Rick vividly brings to life the many worlds of New York at that time, from downtown hip salons to luxury fashion magazines to the gay scene. Within a few years, he was doing hair and makeup for advertising shoots and magazine editorials, pushing towards the goal of working for Vogue magazine. Many of the editors and photographers at Vogue disagreed with having one person do both the hair and makeup on a shoot, but Rick recounts how he won them over to his beauty vision through sheer hard work. If you're interested in fashion history, listen to this interview. Rick relays his memories of all the greats. Richard Avedon, Polly Mellon, Irving Penn, Helmut Newton, Lauren Hutton, Francisco Scavullo. Always honest, he talks openly of the joys and problems that came with working with such famed fashion geniuses, as well as the issues his own ego sometimes created during this period. The 1970s were a time of great success for him, flying all over the world, making great money, his work on the cover of the most important magazines. A love affair in the late 1970s changed the course of his life. Rick's relationship with a photography student led him to start taking his own photographs and put his makeup hair career mostly on hold while he dealt with the ups and downs of their intense and painful relationship. When he returned to work in the early 1980s, Gillette was able to hit an even higher level of success. From 1981 to 1987, he had a second heyday while living in a gorgeous floor-through loft he designed in the financial district. In the late 1980s, he started a new career as a photographer which, as you'll hear, proved to be a less seamless transition than he hoped for. In 2000, Gillette returned to his first love, interior design. And then in 2013, he opened a gallery in the town of Hudson in upstate New York. It combines fine art, lighting, and furniture in a light-filled 3,000-square-foot space, perfectly curated by Rick. We talk a lot about composition, lighting, and color in regard to all of his careers, particularly about his interest in transformation and beauty. Longer than most of my interviews, I hope you'll find the time to listen to this conversation. When I was with Rick, after we had already been chatting for hours, we went outside to have a bite to eat. Due to the decreased sound quality, I originally planned to edit it all out, but this final 20 minutes is where we discuss his gallery and the last few years of his life. Rick was lovely to chat with. As you'll hear, he was full of stories and memories of a life very fully lived in fashion. Enjoy. So thank you for sitting down with me today. Oh, no, I'm very, welcoming very me happy, into your me. gallery. Thank you. It's, um, I mean, I, I certainly love the diversion <laughs> from, uh, I mean, every day is busy here, mm-hmm. obviously. And um, again, because it's just so constantly changing. But then that's really what my life has always been about. Yeah. It's been about transformation. 
And uh, so, you know, whether I was working in hair and makeup and, you know, taking a person and, um, and helping them to fit the role that I thought and that the magazine perhaps thought uh, or the advertising company, uh, that that person should be in that particular fashion situation mm-hmm. um, or, or beauty situation or, or a movie in Hollywood. That's why I got into that business. I wasn't really interested in being a hairdresser. I wasn't really interested in being just a, a makeup man. I was interested in creating, well, really creating looks that worked as editorials, but at the same time, I really wanted to influence the street. And, um, and it was, I, I think probably the person that was most uh, successful in doing that uh, was our, the combination of us together was Lauren Hutton. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I did her hair and makeup from 1972 until really 88, I think. And then by 89, I was photographing. So when I photographed her, I had somebody else do the hair and makeup. And, um, and from then on, so I, I didn't, but in all of those years, every haircut she had was mine. Mm. And, and often, you know, we changed the color somewhat also. You know, for me, all of that had to do with, with timing and like what was going on in New York fashion, what was going on in Paris. I never got to work with Lauren for Italian Vogue. I did work with her for Amica, but it was just a cover. And I think it was just a cover. Well, yeah, it was a profile on her. So it was the cover and then a kind of a profile picture of her inside and then the two of us together. I mean, the person that I worked most with in Europe was Helmut Newton. Mm-hmm. And, and that was just incredible because um, when, I mean, I think prior to us working together, I mean, especially in American Vogue, obviously Helmut was totally, he did not need direction. <laughs> I mean, they, and of course, Vogue used him for, or worked with him for, you know, what he did. Mm-hmm. And, but his images were always, you know, very European, decadent, uh, the hair and the makeup was done by incredible hair and makeup people in, in France and in Italy. Um, and I mean, I admired those photos a, a lot. By the time we worked together for American Vogue, I, I had been in the magazine quite a bit already. Uh, well, we, I really, my first cover and major editorial was in 1973. But I immediately kind of ushered out that 1960s, um, really over the top, mm-hmm. wonderful, you know, hair and, and makeup that, that people were doing and, and brought it more down to earth. And um, I worked, I mean, the first person that I did a really major story with in my first cover of American Vogue was Karen Graham. Mm-hmm. And Karen was, she was uh, very important already. It was incredible because every photo that you saw of Karen prior to our working together, she was like this amazing model. I mean, you looked at her and you just thought of, 
you know, of something bigger than life in a way. Not that she was a big woman, but just so perfect and um, kind of untouchable. Mm -hmm. And she actually had her personality was kind of very much that way generally. She was always, I mean, very, very nice to me, but she never really kind of opened up and got, was had, never had really fun. Mm -hmm. And so I had worked with her first with Irving Penn. That was a big story. It was a big fashion beauty story, but it wasn't a cover. And, I, and in those pictures, they were very Penn and I really thought, okay, I'm, I'm gonna do the, something that is really, really super manicured, really makeup that is obviously makeup and change her look. And, and so I, I had a um, natural hair wig uh, made for her. And Vogue was amazing in those days because if I said, I need wigs from Edith Embry, they would just call them up and then I'd go there and they would just do whatever I wanted. And I mean, it was an amazing time. Um, I mean, they, they picked me up in a limousine and, and took me to work. Uh, at not every time, mm -hmm. but often. It was that pen sitting was my first like, it was the, the real test for me with Polly Mellon about like how much could I really handle because they had never worked with anyone doing just hair. I mean, any one person doing hair and makeup. It was always a hairdresser and a makeup person. And I really had a hard time convincing them uh, in the beginning that, I mean, when I went for my first interview with Polly, and again, uh, I was really incredibly fortunate because Donna Mitchell and Lauren Hutton, I had worked with the two of them for magazines and advertising other than Vogue mm -hmm. when I was virtually unknown. Once I did, they sort of embraced me and they both told Polly Mellon about me. So my dream of going to, to New York to work for Vogue magazine came true when Polly Mellon called me up. Well, she didn't, her assistant mm -hmm. called me up and said, Mrs. Mellon would like you to come in for, she'd like to meet you. She would like to uh, talk to you about working for Vogue. And how did you get from, I mean, you grew up in upstate New York, right? Rome, New York. Rome, New York. But I was obviously never like a Rome, New York kind of guy. Yeah, what was your and, childhood like there? Uh, it, it was super interesting. I mean, my parents uh, came from a Sicilian background. Both sides of the family were Sicilian, but my mother's side of the family was, most of them had been born in America. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, my her father had come over from Sicily and he, he you know, started selling vegetables on the street in New York City uh, in a cart uh, until he made the money to move to Rome, New York. It just happened that, um, it's, I mean, it's kind of silly that uh, Rome attracted a lot of Italians. <laughs> so, and, and also the reason for that was that the, um, there was in, this in, amazingly fertile land around Rome so these truck farms all were there and they grew amazing vegetables. So it was perfect for my grandfather to move there. So he started out with a 
vegetable market at first, like a summer vegetable market, which turned into a market and then turned into a supermarket. And so, I mean, really, I grew up with family in the supermarket business. My first job was, my first job was when I was in junior high, was like, I was a bottle boy in not my family's store, actually in one that was closer to our home. That's how I started to first make money. And, and, uh, and then as I got older, my brother opened his own market, which actually grew into being the most successful independent supermarket in America. And it remained that for about 20 years. So when I was in junior high, moving into high school, I worked in his market. It was fantastic because, I mean, I was only, well, when I started working there, I was probably 14. By the time I was 15, he was leaving me there, like, to run the store and, you know, man the cash register and all of that. Of course, as time went on, it, I could never have done that because it became a huge thing. When I was working there, it was the beginning and it was a small market. But that experience was wonderful because I think it really, you know, gave me a lot of extra confidence. And so I, I think that I was a lot more mature than a lot of the other kids that I was going to school with. And then I was, became really interested in theater. And in fact, how that happened was that a local, uh, the director of community theater in Rome spotted me. He like asked me if I was interested in being in the show that they were doing. And it was a big musical. I said, sure, you know. And I mean, it was kind of, I, I had thought about being an actor and I always loved to sing. And so when it was, it was wonderful. When he asked me, I ended up with, a nice part in this musical and I had like a solo singing and the whole thing and then I did another another show with him that was when I was like 16 17 at that point it was either I was going to be an actor or I was going to be an interior designer I hadn't really thought that I was going to be a hairdresser but it was in that last couple of years of high school that I really discovered Vogue it was really a lot had to do with Breakfast at Tiffany's. Mm-hmm. It was the exposure to that movie, to Audrey Hepburn's transformation in that movie, and that was when I really, that's when it really struck me that like, I, I just loved the idea of how different she looked from her earlier films. Mm-hmm. And I had an older brother that was a hairdresser. He actually worked in Syracuse, New York. He would come home to visit on his day off either once a week or every two weeks. And he was, you know, he'd stay at my mom's house for a night or two. He, of course, ended up doing my mom's hair and my aunt's hair. And I never really sat there and like really watched him. I mean, I would go in and out and like, you know, talk a little bit and you know, leave. <laughs> but I certainly saw him at work. But suddenly, Vidal Sassoon became like the hair person. And, and you started in seeing all these amazing architectural cuts in, in the magazines. And because I was already interested in interior design and architecture, those haircuts fascinated me. You know, it was like, I, I just loved the idea of that. 
So my younger brother, who's five years younger than me, one of his schoolmates, his little girlfriend at school, because uh, I think that, let me think, if I was, if I was um, 17 by that point, then they were like 12, 13 years old. Barbara was this young girl. She had amazing, like, natural platinum blonde hair, long, straight platinum blonde hair. She was very thin. She really looked a lot like Twiggy. One afternoon, the th three of us are like hanging out. You know, I said, I, we were looking at the magazines and I said, oh, why don't we cut your hair like this? Really, it was an asymmetrical session cut. So it was very short in the back and short on one side and longer on the other. And she said, oh, okay. My brother had scissors at home so I just got his scissors and just went for it. And I probably spent, well, I spend this much time on haircuts even now. I probably spent like an hour and a half on that haircut at least. But when it was done, it was perfect. It looked like the magazine. And that was and your first time ever cutting? Ever, wow. ever, like picking up scissors and cutting somebody's hair. So even, I mean, I was surprised actually. I mean, I had to have been confident enough that, you know, that I suggested it and, and we did it. But it just made me aware that, oh, I can do this, you know? So everything got really complicated suddenly because community theater was wonderful, but there was, there was a, the first dramatic show that they were mounting. It was A View from the Bridge. And I don't know if you know that story. Mm -hmm. Well, it's in, it takes place in a boys' school. There is a female t teacher who's one of the important teachers there. So it's all these boys, and there's the one boy who, again, I mean, he's a teen, not really a boy. And um, he's, like, the more sensitive one. He's he's the one that's kind of doesn't really... I mean, he's... He, like more of a poet and an uh, artist and he's not like playing ball with the other guys and you know they're they're giving him a hard time and he's also uh, in you know he's becoming a man and he is sort of really confused it's, it's getting really hard for him and this teacher befriends him and really brings him through this difficult time I wanted that part I just, I just, I mean, I could really, I mean, knew I was gay. And it wasn't that his character was, that they said he was gay, and maybe he wasn't. But it certainly was something I could relate to, even though I had never, ever had any problems about being gay or, or problems at school or anything like that. It, it, that was, a, that's a whole other story. It was like incredible that, I mean, I had boyfriends and girlfriends in high school. And people really, really knew how strong some of these relationships were, but they never turned it into anything like sexual and bad. Mm -hmm. It was like that I was just the artist. I was the one that was different than everybody else. Um, I was, you know, I was the one that looked like Fabian or one of those, you know, these movie guys. And it was really interesting because, I mean, obviously I'm small. <laughs> you know, there were all, there were, I thought, again, being this young Sicilian kid, 
and living in a town where there were a lot of amazing wasps. <laughs> I mean, some well, my boyfriend was gorgeous. He was a football player, blonde hair, blue eyes. Uh, I was much taller than me. So I thought, I didn't even think I was attractive. But, you know, these other people were absolutely treating me like I was. So anyway, the thing is though that that was not a good thing <laughs> because it made me too aware of beauty mm-hmm. and too aware of like, and especially being in community theater. And the reason why I didn't get the part in A View from the Bridge was the, the director who, again, I mean, who was the person that brought me in there in the first place. And when people were reading for the part and he wouldn't let me. And I, you know, I said, well, why? I mean, I, I wanted, I can do this. And he said, he said, first of all, he said, you don't understand. This is a troubled young man who doesn't fit in. He feels like everybody in the school doesn't like him and they make fun of him. He said, people adore you. He said, you're, you're like this little star walking around. I never heard anything like that. I had no idea, you know, of anything like that. I mean, and he said, you know, you, you are the, the kid who's going to stand out on the stage. You're not supposed to in this part. You're supposed to be the one that is kind of insignificant. And, that, and that's the problem, is that you don't feel like you have a life. And he said, you have a life. And it was, that was such a wake-up call to me because it was the first time that I ever kind of looked at myself from somebody else's perspective. And, and it also made me aware, even more aware of the whole thing about, about how people looked and how, you know, some people just were photogenic and other people weren't. And they might have been really good looking. It turned out that, I mean, the camera loved me. It was not something that I, you know, thought about like, oh, you know, I want to be photographed. But I ended up being photographed quite a bit and by the top photographer in Rome, New York. And uh, so he took this picture of me when I was 14 years old. And, um, and even then though, it didn't occur to me that it, that was anything that special. My mother had arranged it and he took this photo of me and he entered it in a contest. He won for taking the best photo of a young man, you know, on his way to being a man. Mm -hmm. He was all happy about that, you know, and he gave me a big beautiful print of it. What I'm trying to, what I'm getting at is how my life was almost kind of like preordained. You know, it was everything seemed and and also i had i had from the time i was like god five years old i was watching hollywood movies i mean you'd you'd get home from school and there there would be this late afternoon film that was always on you know and they were all these incredible classic films and so i was again really early on i was very aware of the art direction in those films um, you know, the rooms, the homes, the women, the men, and just how polished everything was. 
and or or when it wasn't how it was thought out mm -hmm. about how it wasn't and like all of those things sort of became ingrained in me and I was I was like redecorating my parents house when I was 14 years old but seriously I tore down a wall <laughs> one weekend when they weren't around and luckily it wasn't load-bearing <laughs> it just it all sort of so fit together and it was so it was never the only thing that I really planned was once I decided because by the time I decided that I was going to go to New York to work for Vogue, I was in a relationship in, in Syracuse, New York. I had been working as a hairdresser in Syracuse for almost two years. And uh, my life with this guy had turned into something that was not really, it was great. I mean, a lot of couples would have been thrilled and stayed in it forever. But it was just too much like regular straight Mm -hmm. relationships like a marriage and again I was really young I mean I was by the, by the time I left I, I was going on 21 I, so I had already been in this relationship for almost two years with a we had the top floor of a beautiful house and a car and you know the house was totally decorated and and at the same time I didn't necessarily I didn't expect it but I ended up being stolen from one salon to another, which is what happens with good hairdressers. Mm -hmm. That, you know, if you're on the radar, that somebody will come in and, and offer you more money. And that's what happened. So I ended up being like the most in-demand hairdresser in Syracuse, more than my brother. <laughs> and we were working in the same salon. And he was brilliant. He was like an amazing hairdresser. Anyway, so by the time I decided that I was going to pursue Vogue magazine. I had the confidence to, to leave, and I got on the train, and I just went to New York. My boyfriend wasn't happy. So I went to the city, and again, even that was unreal, because I, I was sleeping on somebody's sofa, a woman that I knew from, from Rome, who was a couple, well, she was a few years older than me. She was gay, she was in a relationship. She, they, they lived in Chelsea, but they lived in a part of Chelsea that was really rough at that point. So I got to New York, I needed a place to stay. I was sleeping on their sofa after having this beautiful apartment. Mm -hmm. And I'm in this really foreign environment, right? But I loved it. It was like, this is New York, you know? And I was thinking of West Side Story, and because it was like a very rough kind of Hispanic neighborhood, and um, but then not far was away was a much more upscale uh, white neighborhood, and so I was experiencing all of that, and also I wanted to get to know, you know, I wanted to meet people, so I would go to clubs that were like popular at that time, and not that I did a lot, but I mean, in fact. It was just within the first two weeks that I was there, I went from sleeping on my friend's sofa to living in a penthouse apartment on East 65th Street with this really, that this man was, he was not that, he was only like three years older than me, but he was successful. He was actually, he was a hair colorist. And he was very successful and his parents had money 
So I found myself there. And then we got a beautiful apartment together on Central Park West, or just off of Central Park West, right next to the Dakota. So I think that, I mean, all of these things really gave me the confidence and made me feel like I belonged in that, that glamorous world mm-hmm. that you saw in the magazines or you saw in the movies. So I found a salon. I thought I had a letter uh, for Kenneth to uh, his, I had been doing his sister's hair in, in Syracuse. And um, so I got this letter of recommendation to go and meet her brother. Well, when I went to the salon, which was in the East 60s, I guess, and it was a townhouse, it was like really unbelievable. <laughs> but I got there and I, you know, explained to the, the desk person the whole thing. And she introduced me to one of the lead hairdressers there, and, but not Mr. Kenneth. So this guy was like really condescending. And um, he said, well, Mr. Kenneth isn't in, and you have to have a real appointment to meet him. And um, he like didn't want to believe that this letter was like from Kenneth's sister, or he, maybe he believed it, but he wasn't going to help me. Mm-hmm. And um, he said, well, if you want to work here, you're going to have to start out as a shampoo boy like everybody else. <sighs> and. He said, you'll be assisting me or one of the other stylists. I looked at him. I said, I've been a stylist like, since I was in beauty school. I taught styling in beauty school. Got extra credits for doing that. <laughs> I'm not going to start shampooing hair now. And I just like walked out. And then, of course, I'm on the street and not knowing like, what am I going to do. So... Um, I went back and you know talked to the guy I was living with and stuff, and again looking at magazines and looking at credits in magazines, and I found this salon that was in the village. The man that ran it was a man by the name of Tommy Barada. The salon was called Barada, and at that point Eighth Street was amazing. I mean, we're talking about 1965, 60, 66. Um, Everybody was dressed like you. I mean, but and um, they sold the most amazing shoes from Italy, and it was one incredible boutique after another. So the salon was there, and there was a boutique in the front of it. And so you didn't really know how big this salon was from the front. It just looked like this clothing store. And um, so I was standing in front of it trying to decide, well, should I go in here or shouldn't I go in here? And I like, couldn't make up my mind because I thought it doesn't look like a really important salon. But I had heard that Tommy Barata worked for Clarell and that he worked for some of the magazines. And so I, I'm standing there and this young woman who was the receptionist came out and she said, can I help you? And I said, uh, well, I was thinking about coming in to see if you needed another stylist. And it was so funny because on one hand, I was really confident and I thought, you know, I was living in this penthouse on 65th Street, but I was really shy. She said, well, we know we can always use another stylist if you're good. And she said, come on in. And, you know, 
I'll give you somebody and you do their hair. There was this older woman, manicurist, and she, at the time, I mean, bleached hair in those days was terrible. Yeah. I mean, they destroyed Marilyn Monroe's hair. If you, if, I don't know if you noticed, but by the time that she did, something's got to give. And George Masters was the hairdresser on that. And he bleached her hair like to death. Suddenly it went from her normal blonde to like white. And uh, it was like, it really, to me, I looked at it and said, oh my God, they destroyed her hair. And, but that's what bleached hair was like. So they give me this woman with bleached hair that's really thin. And luckily, I had been dealing with that in Syracuse. So I did this woman's hair and it was like no problem for me. And it like looked great. <laughs> and I got the job like immediately. I, I ended up working there only, only actually a bit over two years. And I kept working there and then quitting and then going back and then quitting again because they weren't, they were not giving me as much freedom. Well, they did, but it was never enough for me. <laughs> and I couldn't tell them that, you know, that I was really basically grooming myself. Uh, and I was kind of working with Tommy to try to make some connections. And I did, I ended up getting some of his clients. One of them was the, she was married to Joel Brodsky. I don't know if you know that name. Yeah. Joel Brodsky is the person who took the most amazing photographs of the doors. Valerie had become a friend and so I was, she was coming to my home and stuff. She said to me like, okay, so like, what's your plan? Like, really, what do you wanna do? I mean, you're not gonna work in that salon forever. And I said, no, I'm not working in that salon forever at all. I said, I, want, I need to put a portfolio together because I need to have a portfolio that I can ultimately show to that Vogue magazine. I want to do hair and makeup for Vogue. She said, well, come and, you know, you can work in the studio on your days off. I can introduce you, you can work with Joel. He doesn't do a lot of fashion, but um, he does some and he'll help you to get going with the portfolio. And, um, and I will introduce you to one of the other photographers that I represent who's a very busy fashion photographer. Fashion photographer, he wasn't a well-known editorial photographer. Mm -hmm. He did a lot of beautiful work for uh, Avon and in beauty companies and catalogs. And it was working with this guy, Bob, and working, starting to work for Avon, where my makeup was already in a beauty yeah. realm. Had you started doing makeup in beauty school or what? Yeah, yeah. I start, yes, I started doing makeup right away. Uh, I mean, you know, it was a, obviously it was a process. It went from like really natural to like, well, to, by the time I was working in Syracuse, I mean, I could handle eyelashes like, <laughs> you know, no problem. So it went from working with Bob to I started working with Steve Horn. Mm -hmm. So Horn Griner was big. I mean, it was a, they were a huge, both still and television production company. They were both like really wonderful guys. Before I knew it, I mean, I was like working with Steve constantly. And again, doing everything from, from everything from he, I think, I think I probably did my first Revlon job with him. 
So everything from Revlon to Virginia Slims to Scotch ads or whatever it was, you know, this is all before I worked for Vogue. It was, it happened the way that it needed to happen. Uh, so that by the time I did get the first shoot that I did with Lauren, which was a cover for Women's Day magazine with Francesco Scavullo. Mm, wow. And by that point, I had already been working for Women's, for Women's Day magazine, like a lot. I mean, they took me on my very first location job to Columbia. And on that trip, I was working with Susan Blakely, mm. and who was wonderful. I mean, like really, really wonderful. The other girl might have been Shelley Hack. So that, that trip was a real eye-opener for me. I think it was the first time I smoked grass, <laughs> but I was Columbia. Back to Lauren Hutton and Scavulo. Scavulo treating me like I didn't exist. And Lauren was, you know, when I pulled out my equipment and the brush that I was using was the brush that worked best for me. It wasn't a, a Pearson Mason or Mason Pearson, whatever. It wasn't like the brush, you know, that all the models were supposed to be using. Well, that particular brush was only good for brushing your hair. It wasn't good for actually styling. So any hairdresser that used that brush, how they ever styled anybody's hair with it was, I mean, you couldn't, it was like for brushing. Anyway, so she, Lauren said, oh, you can't use that brush on me. And I said, well, I'm sorry, I can't use that brush. You know, I said, but you know, I've, we've got to do your hair. And her hair was, she did not have great hair. It was, a, it looked good in pictures, but she didn't have great hair. And it was long at the time and just it wasn't really well cut. And anyway, so I said, listen, just let me do it, you know? And so I, I, I did it and she let me do her makeup, but she of course had to like change some things and whatever. And, um, but what I did was, I set her hair, but then blew it so that it didn't look set. And then I rolled it and pinned it under so that it looked like she had a bob, a waved bob, mm. but very soft, not like 1920s or anything. Just, And it looked totally like I had cut her hair. Scavulo comes in and he said, you cut her hair? And I said, no, no, it's, I didn't cut it. And he said, Lauren. That looks amazing. And so he did this beautiful cover of her. And so then she started asking for me. And the first things that I did with her were advertising things, not really important things. I did, we did something with, with Horn Griner. Then I met Donna Mitchell, who got really close to me, like right away. She became one of my early best friends. And, um, and Donna was major. I mean, I mean, honestly, when it comes down to it, they were in competition in a sense because they were working at the same moment. Mm -hmm. And Avedon loved both of them and he was grooming both of them to ultimately for this new, for this new uh, line of cosmetics that Revlon was planning to do. And he had worked with uh, Charles Revson years, God, maybe 20 years yeah. before I ever came on the scene. So Donna also was like, 
had started having me cut her hair. By that point, I had gotten fired from the salon because I was on a job, and in those days, models would do a job for a few hours like in the morning. They might do another one in the early afternoon and another one later, or they might do a half day here and a half day there. So this one job, I, I was booked for Avon. I was supposed to be at work in the salon, but I had gotten in touch with them the day before and said, look, I'm not gonna be able to come in. I'm having furniture delivered. They won't give me the, the time when it's gonna be here and you know, just made up this thing. I worked that day with the most beautiful woman I had ever, ever laid eyes on in my entire existence, Jennifer O'Neill. Oh yeah. So that morning, I worked on Jennifer and Regine Jaffrey, mm -hmm. who ultimately married Chris von Wagenheim. So these are two, like, stars, you know. We had a great time. They loved their hair. They loved their makeup. Well, Regine went to Clairol shoot in the afternoon. Tommy was there. <laughs> so she walks in. She's still in my hair and makeup. And Tommy said, Regine, you look beautiful, wonderful, like, who did your hair and makeup? I, he said, I'm not even gonna change it. And she said, oh, this new guy that, you know, everybody's talking about Rick Gillette. And he said, Rick Gillette. And so he calls his sister, who by that point was the salon manager. So I, and my boyfriend was still working in the salon. So he knew how to track me down. So I get on the phone and it's Tommy's sister. I know that you, I know that you're not at home. I know that you know you didn't have anything being delivered. And you, I want you to the minute that you finish work there, I want you to come to the salon. We have a lot to talk about. I was first of all, I was exhausted, but I went. You know, no one in the salon works freelance except Tommy. She said Tommy's the star in this salon. I just looked at her and I said, "You got that wrong. I'm the star in the salon." <laughs> I had heard that Maury Hobson and Alan Lewis had started an agency for hair and makeup people. And I, right after I left the salon, I went to a phone booth and somebody had given me Maury's phone number. And I called him and asked if I could meet with him. He had heard of me. He said, sure, why don't you meet Alan and I at uh, one of the East Side hamburger drink places that P.J. Clark's. Oh, P.J. Clark's, yeah. Yeah. So come meet us at P.J. Clark's for, for a drink and, um, you know, we'll talk. They took me on immediately that night. Within the next few days, I was working for Glamour. And the next job that I got through them was with Richard Avedon. And it was photographs of Fade Away for publicity photos for the arrangement. Mm. And this was my introduction to working with Richard Avedon. <laughs> this was before I ever was ever worked in Vogue at all. Yeah. I'm told that I have to show up at Fade Away's penthouse apartment at seven o'clock in the morning so I, I don't know if, he, if I even slept the night before. I mean, I was, I was like probably so nervous. But by the time I got there, you know, I was calmed down a bit, and she answered the door herself 
in a white cherry cloth bathrobe, just out of the shower. She was soaking wet. Her hair was totally wet. She was the most beautiful, with no makeup on, with that wet hair, that I had ever, ever seen her. I mean, I had seen her in films, you know, and of course she was gorgeous in films, but this was this young, beautiful woman who honestly, it's like, why hadn't she ever done a role where she didn't wear any makeup? But of course I just said, it's just, you know, it's a pleasure to meet you and thank you so much for allowing me. And, you know, and she took me into her, um, her makeup room and so I'm doing her hair. And of course, you know, I had to like set it. And uh, while I was doing that, she was doing her own makeup. And I mean, she was not gonna let some complete stranger do her makeup. So, but as she's doing her makeup, she's drinking orange juice and she's like popping these things in her mouth that like look like vitamins. And probably some of them were, but she went from being this gorgeous, sweet, young woman, and she turned herself into Faye Dunaway. By the time she finished her makeup, by the time I had, you know, blown out her hair and had it, got it ready to go to do other stuff with it when we got to the studio, she had turned into the movie star and a bitch. I mean, it was like, I couldn't, I had had some experience with, with people that took, that took speed. I mean, in those days, I mean, I, half the people that worked in the salon mm -hmm. were, you know, were working on speed. Uh, I had even tried it myself, but it was not something that, that if you weighed 122 pounds, that you wanted to do because <laughs> I was speedy enough as it was. Yeah. And um, so luckily I didn't really get into it, but I, I totally recognized what had happened. When we're in the limousine, she's not talking to me anymore. She's just there with her sunglasses on, smoking, and you know, she's no longer speaking to me. We get to the studio and um, you know, I introduced myself to Avedon and he's like being really like, Dick was, when, especially when he was working with a movie star, a personality, he would get really nervous. But his way of dealing with that was that he would become Richard Avedon. Mm. And he would, he directed everything. I was working with these two people that just, I had never been treated like that. And it wasn't that they were treating me, it wasn't like they were really treating me horribly, like they weren't like saying terrible things to me and stuff, but they were just sort of ignoring that I was a person who actually was a talented young person. Mm -hmm. I did the hair, but I was being directed a bit more than I was accustomed to, but I did it. And it turned out to be a really good day. At the end of the day, you know, everyone was happy. So that was my introduction to working with Avedon. But I knew at that point that if I was ever really gonna work with him, that I couldn't let him like to walk all over me. The moment that you didn't appreciate me, I wasn't any good. <laughs> I mean, I might've been good, 
but I wasn't who I was. Yeah. I wasn't, so I wasn't doing Your like best. what I could do. So time passes and Donna Mitchell and Lauren Hutton both had working with Polly Mellon and both of them said, you've got to meet this guy. And uh, so I got the interview with Polly and I'm showing her my portfolio, which was pretty thick by that point. And she kept turning the pages and saying, oh, she kept me waiting for two hours, by the way. And um, so she comes out, I'm waiting in the reception room, which was in the Gray Bar building at that point. And it looked like the set of the magazine in Funny Face. I mean, it really was Funny Face. And the editors were going in and out, and well, the assistants, and it was like, and everybody was like, you know, really dressed and made up. And it was fun to see, but it wasn't fun. I mean, these people were really like focused. <laughs> and so I'm sitting there and um, I'm waiting and I'm waiting and it's getting to the point I'm thinking, you know what? I don't want to stay here anymore. <laughs> and finally, she comes out. She's wearing Giorgio St. Angelo jeans and jean jacket, little t-shirt underneath. The jacket's like all studded and, and the jeans are like really fitted. And this is this older woman. And, but it turns out she wasn't really that old and neither was Abaddon, but I thought they were. Because, I mean, I was young. <laughs> I mean, they probably were in their 50s, but I thought they were like in their 60s or something, you know? She was always super dramatic. And she's like, and she would talk in this very sort of breathy way, you know? She's like, oh, oh, I'm so sorry to have kept you waiting. And so she sits down next to me and she's got my portfolio on her lap and she keeps turning the pages. And she keeps saying, well, so who did the hair here? And I said, I did. And a little later, she, and she's looking at these things and she's like turning the pages but quickly, but looking at them and then turning back and looking at it again. And then saying, and who did the makeup here? And I said, I did. It goes on like this, like through, through the, my whole portfolio. She closes the portfolio and she said, well, what would you like to do for us? And I said, hair and makeup. And she said, oh, no one does that. I said, well, that's what I do. She said, well, you know, we, we always have one person doing the hair and makeup, someone else doing the makeup. And I said, well, I understand that. And I see it in the pages. I said, but that's not what I want to do. She said, well, we'll have to see about this. So I left. And it was probably, I don't know, 10 days. I, this call, Mrs. Mellon would like you to do, uh, to be at such and such address, the photographer is Bob Stone. And it was, it was a small shoot, um, two really beautiful models, but I don't, they weren't people I knew at all. They weren't big models. So these were like fashion pages for like the less important ones for mm -hmm. like the middle of the book. And so I, I, she lets me do the hair and the makeup and she says, oh, beautiful, beautiful. You know, and you know, we keep changing outfits and I'm changing things. And she's like, 
And then, though, the, by that point, I was living in an apartment by myself on the Upper West Side, and the apartment we were working in was not far from mine. And I had really, like, done my apartment. It was a huge parlor floor, what was like a studio, but it had a sliding door. Mm -hmm. Gorgeous. It, it was all, the whole room was, like, paneled, and the sliding door went into the wall, and, you know, had beautiful Victorian, uh, well, frosted glass in it. And um, it was, so the apartment was beautiful, and I had, like, really gone kind of crazy with it. I had stripped all of the paneling myself and just kept it natural and just, just buffed it. And so it was this beautiful, intricate wood paneling, but in this natural wood. And um, the furniture was all really, like, out of the whole mob thing that was going on. And the curtains were a floral print that was totally like some of the dresses girls were wearing, vintage fabric. And I had, and I did the floor in this black and white zebra vinyl, huge pattern. And it was constantly spotless. I mean, I'm the Virgo. <laughs> so, but the apartment we were working in was a mess. And every time we would, you know, try to go to another spot, it was like, it was dirty, and it's like, and and Polly is getting really upset about this. And I said, and I said, well, Mrs. Mullen, you know, my apartment is right nearby. You know, maybe you want to go there, and and maybe you know, we maybe we can shoot some photos there. So she said, oh, really? Could we? And I said, well, sure. So we all walk over to my apartment, and <laughs> we open the door, and she's like. Oh my God, she's like blown away. And Bob Stone was like really sweet. And I mean, actually the pictures that we ended up doing in my place didn't even run. Not because they weren't beautiful. They were probably, it's just that they didn't go at all with the other pictures mm -hmm. that had been done earlier. But anyway, so that was great because it probably really got immediately on the first thing, she got to know me. Mm -hmm. Before I know it, my agent, is calling me and saying, Rick, I don't know what to do. And I said, well, what's the problem? And he said, Vogue. I said, well, <laughs> he, he said, well, every editor wants you at the same time. <laughs> and I, I said, well, <laughs> that's great, you know. I hadn't worked with Francis or Gloria. I said, well, you know, why don't you find out who the photographers are, you know, let's, Maybe we should like see what's going to be best, you know. And he said, okay. Turns out that one of the sittings was Francis Stein Beauty with Irving Penn. Essentially, it was a bit of a hair story, but they wanted to do the new eyebrow. And I guess that I had must have, I must have done the eyebrows on one of the girls, changed her brows. Mm. Uh, on the Bob Stone shoot. So they decided that I was going to do this eyebrow. And it's with Irving Penn. And Frances was really intense. I mean, she was beautiful, but really hard. And really, I mean, all was like, kind of almost like biting her nails. I mean, she would like, I had no idea why she was always like so crazed. Um, 
and and she would smoke and she would like so she'd go out of the studio and like have a cigarette and and she was like popping tums like she was having she had nervous stomach and anyway though we got along like really as well as you could with somebody who was in that shape <laughs> and um and mr penn was very very nice i mean again it was like i didn't you know i wasn't i was a heron person i was you know i wasn't like a person <laughs> so i and the model was pola who was incredible i don't know if you know about look at pictures of pola from the 70s and unfortunately she died tragically really young at the height of her career so I tweezed Paula's eyebrows and do this like really thin arch, mm-hmm. you know, but again, like her face really round, you know, and that was the eyebrow that was like the new brow for that time. Um, and it was sort of in the wind and I just did it. So it ends up that the rest of the shoot didn't really go anywhere and it wasn't that anybody was upset about anything or anything it just like didn't really go anywhere Penn was like that I mean if he didn't get like turned on about something you would just keep doing different things and different things and he would take a few pictures and then but if he wasn't really turned on then it, you would just say okay thank you it turns out though that the eyebrow picture comes out before the Polly Mellon fashion thing and it's a full page very close up black and white picture of my eyebrow and my first credit in in vogue is this big thing on the page eyebrow the new eyebrow shaped by rick gillette and it's like okay (laughs) yeah this is good the next job was polly booked me by the way she wasn't having a problem ultimately with me doing hair and makeup and she decides to book me to do this trip to Palm Beach and she was actually happy they they were happy to be able to just take one person and they were always even though they spent money like water in some ways they were always like wanting to like save money so in a way that worked in my favor so that was my second shoot with Karen Grant it's with Cork and Peck Chanyon Mm-hmm. Corkin was the most wonderful, down-to-earth guy. He was Lebanese background, but I guess he had worked a lot in Europe. And uh, so very sophisticated on one hand, but really super down-to-earth and like a real guy, you know. Polly and I got there first, and she didn't bring an assistant. And they're like masses of suitcases and when we when I had gone to like Cartagena I mean you know like limousine took us to the airport a limousine picked us up and this was for Women's Day magazine and we were staying in a five-star hotel in Cartagena this is my first trip for Vogue and Polly picks up a rental car station wagon at the airport we drive for what seems like forever by the time we get to this motel it's pitch dark. I'm starving. I'm exhausted. And I'm supposed to help her unload this vehicle, which I started out being happy to do. I mean, 
But, so I'm, I'm like lugging these things in, trying to find like part. So I come back out and with this um, luggage cart and I'm like trying to help her like put these things on the cart and stuff. And she starts like barking orders at me. And then, so then the two of us are like going down the corridor and she's like, I don't know, she's like saying something or other. And I turned around and I said, I'm sorry I ain't fashioned you enough for you, Mrs. Mellon. I said, but yeah, I'm not used to this kind of thing, you know. I ain't no slave. And she cracked up. She like, really, she like cracked up. And she said, oh, oh, sorry, let's just get the stuff in the room and then we'll take you to dinner. So, because that was like the first time that I ever sort of sassed her. Mm -hmm. So the next day we get up, Karen meets us for breakfast and Corkin. Then Karen and I go back to her bigger room than anybody ours. I talked Karen into letting me cut her hair. So I cut her hair in, in all one length in a bob that was just like from about the middle of the neck. So it came just under her chin. That's my first cover of Vogue. Corgan was amazing. But, and the thing though about it was, it was the first time that she looked like an approachable yeah. woman. Mm-hmm. Just a beautiful, approachable woman that could have been a young mother. She could have been, you know, a corporate executive. And she's wearing a Ralph Lauren suit. And I mean, it was like perfect for me. It was like, this was what I thought the 70s were gonna be about, mm-hmm. you know? So after that, I, I kept you know, getting offers by all of them. I hadn't worked with Scavulo since the job that I did with Lauren Hutton. That's when the trouble started. Yeah, when they booked me to work with him, and the reason that he had started to work for Vogue was because Avedon had hepatitis. And he was so sick that they needed, they needed another studio photographer. Mm-hmm. And um, so Scavulo was brought on board. Scavulo was only secure working with, really um, secure working with Wade Bandy. Mm-hmm. Or if not Way, a separate, hair and makeup people, team. I did some things with him where, where I did the hair and makeup and like for interview magazine and stuff and, and it went well. He, he was fine with it, but that was interview, you know? I get booked for Vogue with him. He tricked me. Uh, I get to the studio thinking I'm doing hair and makeup and how Polly let them do this. I mean, obviously she was in on it. Suddenly I'm there and I'm only doing hair. Mm-hmm. This ended up happening like a few times. So when I did just hair, I would like knock their socks off. <laughs> I, I figured if they're, gonna, if they're gonna force me to just do one thing, I'm taking over this picture. And, and honestly, I know that sounds terrible, but when I look at the hair in those pictures, or when I look at some of the hair, um, again, where I worked with Way or someone else, and I don't even know how I did it. 
I mean, honestly, I, I, I cannot even figure it out because it's like dream hair. And I'm talking like in the third person here. I'm just, I, I couldn't even figure it out, but I did it because it, it was their look. It wasn't my look. I was getting credit for being this brilliant sculptor. That's what, that's what Scavula called me. He said, you're not a hairdresser, you're a sculptor. But again, I was not happy. <laughs> and, but it worked out in, it did work out in some ways because then I started getting like all of his hair jobs. Um, and because people were more likely to hire you for Clairol or whatever to do hair like that yeah. than to do a beautiful, you know, modern straight hair bob. So then I, then I did the Paris collections with Abaddon and Lauren Hutton, a lot of pages. <laughs> and I mean, like, I mean, really some of the most incredible pictures that I did with her. At the time, I didn't even know, I didn't know how good they were, honestly, because it was so much work. And even though everybody was wonderful, by that point, we were all friends. I mean, in fact, Avedon was getting a little too friendly. <laughs> when the issue came out, there was a lot of hair that I would not have done if I had had more, um, if I had had more time mm -hmm. and, and, you know, could have like been more assertive and like slowed things down a bit. But there were enough beautiful ones that I didn't, you know, it was, it was okay. How long did it, because it's like 30 something pages, right? How long, how long were you shooting for? I don't think we were there for more than about a week. Maybe a bit more than a week. I'm not really sure now. But we would, I mean, we would work like long days and into the night sometimes mm -hmm. because some things we could only get at night. Almost all of the studio pictures were done at night and the location pictures, which were the bulk of the pictures, which was wonderful. Um, those were, we shot during the day. This was not easy, uh, also this shoot, because I mean, a lot of the time it, it, I really had to like be assertive <laughs> with Avedon. It was not easy. In fact, the very first night that we were shooting, um, and I had never worked at night before. I mean, we were started work at nine o'clock. We get started, and Avedon is like just being is like too directive, you know. And and so I'm trying to make him happy, and the hair is I hate the hair. It's too big. It's too done. It's like too like, you know, it, it could be done, but be, I wanted it to be, if it was going to be done, it was going to be modern. And anyway, cause he keeps directing me. Finally, I just turned around and I looked at him and I said, why didn't you just bring Aragorn? And Lauren burst into tears. Polly Mellon burst into tears. Avedon says, maybe we should just, you know, call it a night and we'll, you know, we'll start back fresh. You know, we'll look at the pictures that we have shot in the morning and we'll start fresh tomorrow. And I mean, he wasn't 
horrible to me or anything. Nobody was. Um, they felt really bad because, I mean, Ty was like, you know, why didn't you just bring her if you wanted him? Because he was, it was, I felt like he was wanting me to do the kind of hair that Ara did for him for like years mm-hmm. and, and d- incredible hair. But I couldn't do what Ara did, first of all. I didn't, and I didn't want to do what Ara did. Um, so anyway, so um, the next morning, it's like eight o'clock in the morning and I get a call from Abaddon. And he said, Rick, um, can, you know, can you meet me at the studio for coffee? And, um, you know, we'll look at the pictures. I have the contact sheets from yesterday. I said, yeah, sure, you know. So I get there, and he's got the contacts out, and the pictures are like, just not new, you know. He said, well, and Mirabella had a copy of the contacts at at her hotel. He said, well, so I just heard from Grace, and... um, She's looking at the pictures, and she said, I thought you were bringing Rick Gillette. And he told me this, which was wonderful. So he said, so, you know, we're going we're gonna to let you do what you do, and we'll see how it goes. And so that's when they let me, like, do her hair pretty much different for each outfit. Polly was loving it because, I mean, this, it was modern, but it was still something that Mirabella would like. You know, she was a lady. So we get back to Scavulo. It was after these pictures that um, Avedon, I think, got sick. And um, so I had already, like, proved myself in both. I mean, it was like, a, like I mean, I had covers already. I had, like pages after pages, more pages than he ever had in Vogue. But he's insisting that I can only do the hair. And I saw like I'm having issues with my agent, you know, saying, look, you know, I don't want to do this. And he's saying, Rick, you're going to win out in the end. Just do it. He said, don't, you know, he said, you're going to like way anyway. And, you know, and, you know, just relax with it. And so I relaxed with it, but I just did this really ex- extravagant hair. It comes down to that they give Scavulo the French collections, or the, collect- the collections in mm-hmm. Paris, rather. So it was similar to the, what I had done with Lauren, that it was to be that kind of a shoot, but it was being, it was, it was on Rene Russo. They tell me that I'm going to do hair and makeup. And so I'm getting all geared up for this, right? Somehow, my agent, well, not somehow, he finally realizes because they, that they had booked way. And um, we had the same agent. And um, so finally, um, Armand was his name. He said, Rick, don't want you to like get to the airport and, you know, be surprised. He said, and then, but you know, they booked way. And I said, no, uh, he, I said, I'm not 
doing the collections, not after what I've already done in Paris. Um, and, you know, not after everything that I've done with other photographers, for me to go there and just do hair, that's not happening. So I had this other job at the School of Studio book. So I went in and I just confronted him. And by that point, we were supposed to be friends. I mean, he used to like invite me to his house for dinner and uh, to the place in, in Shinnecock for the weekend, you know, and all of this stuff. And, and, but still at the same time, I was only doing hair. Mm -hmm. And he would always say, oh, you're the best hairdresser in the world today and all of that kind of stuff. And the whole time I'm thinking, yeah, well, you're not really letting me do what I should do. But anyway, so I go into the studio and I finally said, look, Francesco, you know, I don't like being lied to. And I don't think that I should have to go to Paris and do something as important as the collections and just do the hair. I said, and he, he said, well, he said, you know, again, he says to me, you're the best, the best hairdresser in the world today. And I, that's why I want you on all of my jobs. He said, but you can't do makeup. I looked at him. I said, I can't do makeup. I said, well, luckily, the best photographers in the world don't agree with you. Uh, I said, like, have you noticed that I work with Newton? I work with Avedon. I work with Hero. I work with Arthur Elgor. And I do the makeup for all of them. They don't book Wade Bandy to do the makeup when I'm on the job. I said, so uh, I'm not going to Paris. And I just walked out. And I refused to work with him for I don't know how long, quite a while. And, um, and then, then Women's Wear Daily did this thing on the pros in, uh, in the, uh, the pro hair and makeup people and like all the top people. And they interviewed various photographers about, okay, so who do you think, and, uh, and who do you think, and this and that. And they asked Scavulo. He starts out by saying, well, you know, Way Bandy, I think is absolutely like the top makeup person. And uh, I like working with, Mer with Murray Hobson and Suga, he said, but Rick Gillette is the only person in the business who does hair and makeup equally well. He's the only one. And he's, so he's quoted as saying that. <laughs> and that's when I said, okay, now I'm gonna hold him to it. And so I started working with him again. And from then on, I did hair and makeup totally. And we did some gorgeous sittings with Lauren. And, and other people. So I never had that problem again of just book, being booked for one thing. And then we got friendly again and again. I was, I was renting houses in the Hamptons in the summer and so we would see each other out there and stuff. But um, he, I, I really, he was, well, that one episode with Avedon and that whole thing with Scavulo those were the most unpleasant kind of 
periods in my career. Other than that, I mean, honestly, I was um, blessed. <laughs> you know, it was, I mean, I, blessed is not a word I normally yeah. use, you know. No, I, I just, I was treated incredibly well. I was allowed to really influence the whole look at that time in the 70s. Oh, also though, to get back to um, Newton. So when I first knew that I was booked to work with Helmet, and it was, again, it was um, a, a Florida trip with Polly, with Lisa Taylor, mm. who I had worked with before, and Jerry Hall. I had worked with both of them, but not with Newton. Excuse me. So we were already friends. I mean, and, and um, you know, and Polly, by that point, was just like, just do what you do, you know. But I had this feeling that Newton was like going to try to get me to do his look, you know. But so we, so like for the first pictures we were doing, I think they were, on, and they were mainly on Lisa at first. I thought, I'm not going to try and do what he normally does, you know. So I just, I did, well, again, I just did my really kind of modern, simple, but fashiony enough hair and, and makeup. He just went with the flow. And it, his, the pictures that we did together, uh, well, this first trip with, was, I mean, the pictures were amazing. With, I mean, Jerry looks so incredible in some of these pictures. And she didn't work for Vogue a lot. Uh, but in, uh, in these pictures, in some ways, she looked more beautiful than in any of the other pictures I had seen of her. There's one picture of her in black and white where she's, um, we take it at night. So she's really lit mainly by a street light. And it's on a, on a wharf, you know, like, like a big ship behind her. And she's wearing, I'm not sure if it was, I'm not sure if it was Halston. I know there was a lot, there were a lot of Halston clothes on that shoot, but it's a beautiful white evening dress, but just really, really simple. I pretty much did her hair almost straight just a little, little fullness to it, but very little. The makeup was dramatic, but you didn't really, it didn't register as makeup. Like it was like the makeup like on Lauren and some of those black and white pictures mm -hmm. where she just looked beautiful, but he didn't really look at it and say, look at that makeup. The pictures, one of the pictures of Lisa, um, actually he ended up using in a book, that he, one of the first books that he did. It's, it's an amazing photo. Um, but in that photo, I made the hair like Cleopatra, not Cleopatra with bangs, but, but um, like the Sphinx. Mm. So it was like really almost shaped like this, and like really wide, and, and, but off her face, but bigger than life. <laughs> and the makeup was really, like one of the you know, stronger makeups that I would do. She's wearing this, chiffon that was like this fleshy color really 
pinky, kind of pinky mauvey fleshy color, and you see through. Mm -hmm. So you see her breast through this top, and she's walking really briskly toward the camera, and it's like at dusk. So the lights are coming on in the buildings behind, and it's this. It's basically it's this big motel hotel thing. She's walking on the grass, and you see the buildings behind, and the lights are all kind of flickering, kind of, and it's in color. It's just amazing photograph. But anyway, so the thing is that, um, again, I really got to work with Helmet, where he just he loved that I wasn't trying to please him. I was just I was just trying to do what I thought was right. So then he started asking for me quite a bit. I mean, and I worked with him in Paris. Vogue gave us this really, really big thing in the south of France. And uh, um, it was Lisa Taylor. He was in love with her. And uh, it ended up being the story of Vogue. Oh yeah, I love that. Yeah, that's a and, great uh, and, and well, it made it made the cover of Time magazine. Yeah, sex in Vogue with a picture of Lisa looking completely like <laughs> uh, a bit over the top. That was an amazing, amazing trip. <laughs> I mean, this sounds really terrible, but they all of the photographers spoiled the shit out of me. I mean, really, it was like they, when we weren't working, I mean, it's like any restaurant that I wanted to go to, um, you know, I would, and they would make sure that I had like a great room in the hotel. I mean, more than the editor. And um, I mean, how, um, Corkin was like that. But Corkin and I became like really close friends. We hung out a lot when we weren't working. So the evening, that we get to Saint-Tropez because we were shooting outside of Saint-Tropez at this incredible home of um, Italian movie director who had this incredible house in the south of France. We all kind of arrived separately so that I get a note to meet them for dinner at this restaurant I don't know if I got in a bit later or what it was, but anyway, when I got to the restaurant, they were all there. And Helmet had the chair right next to him, like, waiting for me. And um, so I sit down, you know, we're, like, chatting, and um, then Helmet leans over and, like, whispers, like, in my ear, Rick, I have a present for you. And I said, you do? And he said, yeah, it's coming with dessert. And I'm thinking, what the hell? It's not my birthday, <laughs> you know? So we had dinner with like, you know, everybody's having wine and stuff. I never drank a lot, but um, they all did. Polly was really knocking back. We finishing dinner and dessert arrives. And just as dessert is getting on the table, Peter Keating walks in. Peter Keating was the male model at the time that was the most natural looking guy of, of all the male models. He was beautiful, but he had, his hair was thinning, so it was really short, so like he didn't, really didn't have like a gorgeous head of hair like a lot of the guys. 
but he was just he was beautiful in this you know really believable sort of way mm -hmm. and, and it was his personality that everybody loved even more and Helmut loved him Helmut used worked with him like crazy because Peter was actually worked in Paris more than he worked in New York so Peter walks in and Helmut sort of kicks me under the table and says here's your present <laughs> <laughs> and I was like oh my god kidding me I mean I didn't really you know I I thought, oh, he just, you know, wants me to be keen on this, you know, hot guy, right? And, well, it turns out I ended up having a three-week affair with Peter. I mean, two weeks in the south of France, and then I stayed in Paris because I didn't want to leave him. And he was just amazing. And, um, but, I mean, Helmut planned the whole damn thing. And other... It was really incredible because other photographers did that. It was like they were my pimp. <laughs> Mike Reinhardt loved, he, he loved that he would take me to like Death Valley and the, we'd walk in to the hotel and like the concierge, not the, yeah, the concierge, um, the, like this young, like really handsome, man, but like a real Western sort of guy, we're in Death Valley. And Mike just looks at me and sort of pokes me and says, <laughs> look at that. You know, and he, I mean, Mike was totally straight. I mean, he was like such a womanizer. But he really got off on my meeting people. And um, that was really hysterical. Because, you know, um, it was, again, it was really late at night. And we're all, like, exhausted. And um, so, but we still had to have something to eat. So we're, they take our bags to our rooms. And we have something to eat. And then we go back to the room. When I get to my room, there's a rock sitting on the dresser with a note from this guy. Hello, it's been a long time. <laughs> and and um, I'm it's like, okay, I guess I'm not gonna get much sleep tonight. <laughs> oh man, it was, it was really so cool. But I never, it never got in the way of my work, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, I mean, it was never outrageous anyway. And it was, and again, it wasn't like I was doing drugs or anything. When did you decide to sort of move out of doing hair and makeup? So in 1978, by that point, I had had quite a career already. Mm -hmm. And so I was in my early 30s, I mean, like just just a little over 30. Mike Reinhardt booked me for, I don't know what the job was, it doesn't really matter. Um, so I, I get to the studio, and I had, he had this incredible studio in Carnegie Hall. And at that time, actually, um, Janice Dickinson was, his, they, they, she lived with him there. Mm -hmm. And um, 
So I get to the studio, I worked there a lot, so I knew his, I knew his assistants. But I walk in and there's this young assistant there that I had like never seen before, like really young. And um, he's like stunning. <laughs> I mean like this perfect wasp. And I was always attracted to those kind of guys. And, um, but you know, like probably a bit over six feet tall, the most incredible, the palest blue eyes, like Paul Newman's. Just really wonderful lanky frame, you know, and, and his hair was this color that I always totally loved too. It was kind of a strawberry brown. And um, so anyway, I thought, wow, <laughs> like who's that, you know? But I didn't really, you know, I just was, I didn't really think about it, that he was anybody that I would ever have anything to do with. He looked totally straight to me. So I go in, I, I like, um, they would always get me breakfast. That was another thing, like, and um, so, and the studio manager knew that I, Carnegie Deli was like right near there and they made these, this corned beef omelet sandwich that was like out of this world, you know? So they would, they, they knew I would want that. So they would order it. And so um, they'd bring breakfast. So they get breakfast and he had to go pick it up. His name was Rob Fargo. And um, so Rob has to go pick up my breakfast. So he brings it into the dressing room and uh, that's when he introduces himself, you know? And um, I'm thinking, that's very sweet of him, you know? And, um, because he introduced himself like really, like a, such a well brought up young man, you know? And he goes out, but he kept coming back into the dressing room and like hanging out. He wanted, like watching me do the makeup and the hair, you know? And I'm thinking, so then I said, well, you know, what's, what are you doing here, you know? He said, well, he said, I go to, I'm, I'm actually at Williams College, but I'm, I'm doing this internship, brief internship with Mike before I actually go to the main photo workshop where I'm going to be studying photography and I'm doing a spring course in photography. And um, I thought, oh, I said, that's wonderful. You know, that's, that's great. And so um, the day goes by, you know, and he keeps coming in the dressing room. And then we all have lunch, and he's like sitting at lunch, and I feel like these eyes are on me. But again, I can't imagine that anything's gonna happen with this guy. And um, so then, get ready to leave, and he gets himself together like really quickly, as I'm like already out, practically out the door, and he said, oh, 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 Rick, um, you know, you're going uptown, aren't you? And I said, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm going to Park, I lived on Park Avenue and 70th Street. So he said, well, I'm staying with friends of the family uh, on Fifth Avenue and uh, just above where you are. And he's staying in this like apartment on Fifth Avenue in the, in the 80s. And he said, you know, why don't we just let's share a cab? So I said, okay. So um, we're in the cab and we're getting like close to where I'm going to get dropped off and I try to give him some money he won't take it he said oh but but 
I, I don't want any money, but you know, we can I have your phone number? I'd really like to get together and and talk with you um, about Avedon and you know all these people that you've worked with because you know Mike was an important photographer, but he wasn't Ben. Yeah. Okay, so I said okay, fine, and I, I can't imagine that he's gonna like be calling me anytime soon. I get a call from him the next day. He said, you know, I, I, he said, I'm actually going to be in town, only going to be in town for like, you know, a few more days. And um, then I have to go back to Grafton, which is Massachusetts. And then I'll be at home for a while. And then I leave for Rockport, Maine. And he said, so I really would like to see you soon. And I said, okay, so um, I guess, you know, why don't you come over after dinner this evening and, you know, we'll just have a drink and talk. And, uh, and I had the new Avedon book that had just really come out from the Met show. And it was signed by him and everything. And so um, Rob and I are like sitting on the sofa near one another, <laughs> well, actually close to one another because the book is like in our laps. And we're looking at the photos and I'll, and so I at some point just turn to like say something and you know what happens. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this can't be happening. And I had like this really early call the next morning. I had, I had a really important um, job to do for Elizabeth Arden and it wasn't a client that I had worked with. I mean, I had worked with them, but I, it wasn't like one of, of my regular clients. And I knew that this was an important job and I knew that I had to be up like really super early. And so um, it gets to be, I don't know, like going on midnight. And we're not, and by the way, I don't, I didn't get into a whole thing of like, you know, <laughs> making up. And, um, but, so I said, well, you know, I really have to an early call in the morning, so you know if you don't mind, we should call it a night, and you know, hope maybe we'll see each other for coffee or something again. And he said, "Oh, I can't leave." I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "Well, the people I'm staying with, I have to be in by a certain time, or I have to stay somewhere else." And I, I said, "I think myself." what <laughs> you know he's but he's adamant about this and he said you know do you, you know not can i stay over and so he talks me into staying over well it turns into the love affair of my life and i had already um started taking photos but just you know like with friends and i mean but i had, had bought my first professional Canon 35 millimeter camera. And um, so he, so, so after he left, I, um, I had to go on a trip with Mike to Mexico and um, for Vogue. And Patty Hansen was there, and Janice Dickinson, and Gia. It was an amazing, amazing shoot. So I was, I don't know how long we were there. We were there for over a week. And so the entire time, 
I'm not hearing anything from Rob. And it doesn't really occur to me I'm in Mexico, you know. And it ends up actually, it ended up being like almost two weeks. And then I had to go to LA for pre-production on the American Gigolo. I was designing the look for Hutton and consulting on gear. And so I'm in LA and this whole time, I mean, by this point I'm in love with him. I'm thinking, well, I guess that was brief, you know, and I'm getting kind of upset about it, but I'm thinking, you know what? He's young, it's probably the best. I mean, it was nice, you know, it was great. And, but then I get back to New York and um, there's like all these messages from him. And like, why didn't you, you know, write back to me and, and stuff? So I called him, you know, and I said, what are you talking about? I, ne I never even got a postcard from you. And well, all the, everything he sent me got like stuck in some post office in mm. Mexico or something. And I never ever got them. And he said, I wrote you like a lot. And you just like never got back to me. And I, he said, I, you know, I got really, really upset and uh, all this stuff. And so I said, well, look, I'm in LA. <laughs> You know, I, I'm gonna be here for at least a week. And I said, but when I get back, you know, we'll arrange to get together. You know, and the whole time I'm like really dying to like want to like get on a plane <laughs> and just go back. But of course I couldn't. So we're talking from LA and we decide that we're gonna spend the weekend together at the Ritz Carlton in Boston. And um, I don't know what he told his parents about like what he was doing that weekend, but we we spent the weekend in the Ritz Carlton, like this beautiful suite, and I, it was just like a dream, like the whole thing. Was, I mean, he was twenty three. I was like going to be thirty three. He the reason he was going to Maine in the first place was that he was he had, was having before me, he was having his first affair with a senior at Williams. Mm. And his mother, you know, one of those mothers, like really, everything had to be perfect. Her boys, she had three boys, and they, each one of them had to like be perfect, which meant fitting, you know, checking all the boxes mm. about being a, you know, a guy. And, um, so but she went into his room to like straighten up his room and he was stupid enough, uh, this was over a holiday, to have left a letter that he was writing to this guy that he was having an affair with and she read it, she found out he was gay and it turns into like this, this whole horrible thing. She insists that he like take the semester off and do this internship I mean, how dumb can you possibly be? Like, <laughs> send him to New York to do an internship with a fashion photographer? Yeah. Because he wants to be a photographer. So, she took him from the frying pan right into the fire. And um, so, but he, he, he was really incredible. Because, I mean, he adored his parents. And he wanted to be that person that, that she wanted to be. His father was much, much cooler. 
and and his brothers too were pretty cool. He was really manipulative, and I had just done this. Um, I mean, after that weekend, uh, I had done this thing at uh, Parsons where they had me do an evening, an evening with Rick Gillette about fashion, fashion photography, hair and makeup. And in fact, prior to it, I did this whole makeover that was photographed. So it was a slideshow that was Wendy Goodman mm -hmm. that I did it on. So you saw pictures of Wendy from, you know, her messy look. Excuse me, too, I cut her hair really short and, and did her makeup. And so you, you see this whole slideshow. And um, so I tell Rob about it. And he said, that's the answer. I said, what? He said, I'm going to talk to the head of the school and see if they want to have you come up to do a weekend with Rick Gillette. And, you know, you bring your whole slideshow with you and, you know, it'll be a Q&A and, you know, we'll, we'll do this. He was incredibly smart, by the way. And so I fly up there. <laughs> I, I mean, I had to, of course, I had to fly to Boston. I had to get on this tiny little plane, fly up to uh, Rockport and do this thing. And it was done in like this big living room of this big huge old Victorian house that they were all, a lot of the students were living in. And, but Rob had booked a motel room, so, you know, for me, supposedly. We do this thing and all the students are like wonderful. And the teacher is really, really nice and really knowledgeable. But So it like goes really, really well. And before I know it, it's like they want me to like hang out with them and stuff. And like, so I spent the entire weekend, but of course Rob was staying with me in the hotel. And people must have known, I mean, his roommate absolutely knew. But, um, but again, no one, no one made a thing about it. Whether they thought that it was going on or not, it was not like talked about. So at the end of the weekend, I'm chatting with the teacher and he said, well, I want you to know that you're always welcome. And I know that you're interested in in taking your own photos, he said, so, um, you know, you, you can spend time here anytime you like, and, you know, you, you can sit on the, in on the classes, and essentially, you can take classes for nothing. He said, I think you'll be good for the students. You know, again, it was like one of those things that just, like, fell into place. So I ended up like going up there like every weekend and then the weekends ended up being like long and like I ended up being there like most of the week and and my agent understood because it was like the first time that I was really like in love with somebody and it was like you know happy time. So it, it turned out that the entire thing went on for about two years and but that's where I got my first real um Ex real exposure and uh, gained some knowledge really about taking photos. Mm -hmm. And I knew all of the other stuff about how to compose a photograph, how, what light looked good. I knew all of those things. I had been doing it since I was 20, you know, in that world since I was 22 years old. In fact, the teacher starts using my photographs 
is like a, an example of, okay, this is the assignment, and this is it done well. And of course, I'm feeling kind of uncomfortable about this, but everybody's loving it. It's like, they, they, like, it's like I'm another teacher. So it was, it was amazing. I, mean, the whole ex I had never been in that atmosphere before, because I had never gone to college. I mean, I went from high school to work. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, you know, and I got an amazing education, but I got it through working with the people that I worked with and being exposed to what I was exposed to. But anyway, so here I am in almost a college atmosphere. So that course ended, I guess it was about three months. And then it's like, what are we gonna do? Rob's mother, just by this point, they know we're together. She is not happy about this. It's like, I'm like this older, lecherous New York fashion guy, right? She doesn't really want him to continue this. Wait, anyway, she decides that they're gonna go on safari for three weeks. He's going on safari with his family, with his two brothers, his mom and dad, they're going to Kenya. His father was an oil man. He had offices in Lagos. This is in the night, you know, this is the late seventies, this is the early eighties. Turns out that he told Rob, he said, Listen, I completely understand. He said, When I was in college, he said, I, I never and you know, I didn't end up being gay, he said, but I was in love with, with one of my friends. He said, I might have been. He said, I, so I, I understand your feelings and you know, we're gonna try to get your mom to like understand. Well, she got furious at her husband and um, you know, cause suddenly she's thinking, oh, my husband was gay. They go to Africa. Well, I'm like devastated. I'm like really like a, a shell. <laughs> And um, I'm living on Park Avenue, and I'm, I just don't want to work. So I'm just taking only the best paying jobs, and I'm not working for Vogue at all, uh, or any magazines. So this was months now that this was going on. I don't know if I'm ever going to see him again. None of this really has to do with fashion, but this is my life. So yeah. I'm having this really difficult sleep. <laughs> uh, and one morning I'm having a dream and I'm dreaming that Rob is calling me and the phone rings. He's calling me from the lobby of a hotel in London. They like had just gotten in and uh, he said, so this is my first chance to call you. He said, you know, we, I've got to work something out. So he decides that we're gonna spend the summer together. But seriously, his parents' friends have this motorhome, this Winnebago for sale. So-and-so has this, you've met them, they have this motorhome for sale, and you know, what do you think about, it's, he said it's really inexpensive, he said, what do you think about buying it and we take a trip cross-country and he said I'm gonna just tell them that I'm doing it and his parents I said sure <laughs> so we buy this thing we get on the road and we went we took our time taking our time we we're taking the scenic route along the Great Lakes and we drive all the way to uh, well up into the 
Canadian Rockies, and I mean, it's like this unbelievable trip. So we get to Vancouver, we take the ferry over to Seattle, and his ex lived in Seattle. And um, they were still friends, so I, he takes me to meet him, and the, his name's Brian, and this guy is, it's like I'm thinking to myself, what the hell is he doing with me? <laughs> like this guy is like, you know, like a huge, gorgeous, blonde guy. At that point, you know, they were just friends, and, and we stayed there for the weekend, and that was great. And then we drove uh, down into Oregon. I've got beautiful pictures that, from, that I did of him in Oregon. And then I had friends in L.A., and so we just drove into the States and went to L.A. and visited my friends, and then made our way back and we're making our way back but this is like we're already gone for at least like a month and a half already and and we're like taking our time you know and going to all these incredible places um zion zion park and all these places and doing beautiful photos the whole time it's but it's getting to be like it's getting to be almost like uh, three months. <laughs> so one night, and he was always like going to call his parents, like at least once or twice a week, he would go and find a phone and call his parents. In those days, he didn't have cell phones. So one evening, he comes back and he's like all upset. I said, okay, like he's, I said, what's wrong? You know, he said, we've got to go. We have, we have to go back. And we, but we were still like in the Midwest. And he said, we've, we've really got to go back. And he said, my mother is saying that if I don't get back, if I don't apply to go to Harvard, I, she doesn't want me even to go to Williams. If I don't apply to go to Harvard, they're disowning me. <laughs> Not there, she's disowning mm -hmm. me. And it's like, are you kidding me? I mean, this doesn't happen. You know, I'm thinking to myself, it's like, people don't disown their kids anymore, you know, but he has to go back. It ends up being the thing that ended things for us. Not immediately, but little by little it had to end, especially when he started, he got into Harvard. So with all of this that went on and with all of uh, the effects of not being with him anymore, I almost died. I mean, I seriously almost died. I was not working, um, and I'm starting to get a little better emotionally, and um, my agent says, Max Factor wants to take you to Guam and Japan to do this huge campaign for them with Rosie Vella. And Rick, you've got to do this. And I'm saying, I don't, I don't know, I don't know if I'm ready. And he said, you, you've got to do this. And so I went. And it turned out to be an amazing, amazing trip. But I'm still getting over him. And then one night, I'm like alone. Again, I'm in this far, everything was like five-star hotels always. And, you know, it's like, but if you can imagine being alone 
in like this incredibly beautiful place. And um, this was, I ended up in Hong Kong, that's what I'm trying to say. And the friends that I was traveling with after we finished the job had to go back to New York. So I decided to stay in Hong Kong for a few days and take more photos. And so I'm there and I'm in this hotel and I'm all alone and I haven't been with anybody since Rob. And um, so one evening it's just like, I'm like, I'm, I don't know whether to cry or like what to do. So I finally say, you know what? Get dressed, get the hell out, like go out, you know, find somebody, find some friends, like, and um, you're in Hong Kong, you know? So I did. And I, you know, it's a very, it's a strange thing about gaydar, it really works. I ended up, I went out and had a wonderful dinner by myself, first of all. I'm like walking around Hong Kong, totally by myself. <laughs> I, at the, by that point, I'm 34 years old. But I, again, I still look like I'm in my 20s. And um, I ended up walking into this bar after dinner, and it's only guys. I mean, it wasn't packed or anything, but it was obviously a, a place where gay men met each other. Mm -hmm. And um, so, anyway, there are these, there's this, these students there college kids and this one French Chinese student like latches on to me and so I'm really not really into it but he you know convinces me that you know I should go home with him and his friend and his friend met this other this American guy and so we're just going to go over to their place and have a drink and whatever so we get there and I'm like thinking what am I doing here? And, um, but he starts making out with me. And don't you know, and then I, I have to leave. I just said, look, I'm sorry. I really don't feel well. You know, dinner must not have agreed with me or I drank too much or something and I've got to go. And I'd like throw myself out onto the street. And it's, you know, it's the middle of the night. And luckily, this cab comes out of nowhere. <laughs> and takes me back to my hotel. Knew exactly where my hotel was. It was like this famous hotel. Get back to the hotel, and I think that I left like the day after that. I get back to New York, and I'm still like a crazy person, and I still don't really want to work and stuff. I ended up starting to really not feel well, so it wasn't like it was just my mind any anymore. It wasn't my mind and heart. It was like something was wrong. I ended up being one of the first cases of hepatitis B in the mm. States oh. <laughs> from kissing this young Chinese French student. Not even anything else, I'm just kissing yeah, him. Wow. And nobody knows what's wrong with me. Nobody had no hep from hepatitis B. So between that and still having like a broken heart, uh, this. It, it was like almost a year before I get well. So in the end, I was basically away from work for like two years, a bit over two years actually. And I mean, only taking an occasional booking where it was like, you know, they were 
they were going to pay me $10,000 like for four days or something. And in those days, that was a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Finally, something happened that just made me have to get over this. You know, like I had to make this decision, like either you're going to, the doctor said, like either you get over this, you get well, or you may die. <laughs> and he said, because your liver is really suffering from all of this. And um, so I had to get well. And the reason I've told you this entire story is because everybody thought that I could not be any more successful than I had been in the 70s. And remember, there was, there was always this thing that yes, I was considered like a top makeup person, but I was still the hair and makeup person. My, even though I had all these beauty things all the time in Vogue and everything, in some ways people still sort of thought more like I was this brilliant hairdresser, even though you know, I was being paid a fortune to do makeup. And, but anyway, I finally get back to work in, in the early 80s. And it turns out that I've got this much stronger, like, it's the 80s, first of all. So the look was getting stronger. And I had this much stronger approach and I've got, and I've also much more, as even more assertive personality. And at that time, also by that point, I had bought a floor of a building in the financial district, and it was like, it was like big time 80s. And I ended up being more successful from like 1981 till I quit in. I started to wind down in 87, but those were the years that I did all of the incredible things that I did with Irving Penn that with abstract makeups. Mm -hmm. And I mean, like painting somebody's body gold. And I mean, and they were, I was even being allowed to like accessorize things. They would have this, all the jewelry there and I, I could just like choose what I wanted to put on. And I just, I mean, I did like incredible things with pen and I did I don't know how many covers of Italian Vogue I honestly don't know how many covers I, I actually did I have a lot of them but I don't have all of them with Hero and Hero was like taking me to Italy to shoot for Italian Vogue and um, it was like really another major like heyday and I was living in this unbelievable place that I had designed myself and as, as my home and it was going to be my photo studio. And so by 87, I start winding things down and, and it worked actually also because it was about that time that Grace Mirabella got fired. Mm -hmm. So I was not on Anna Winter's radar because she really wanted to bring in her own people. Um, she kept a few people from the, that had been working, but, and, and probably if I had wanted to, I could have like manipulated it so I could have worked with her. But I, I didn't. Anna takes over Vogue. Grace doesn't know what she's gonna do for a while. I, by that point too, I had been working with Jade Hobson a lot. And some of the most beautiful things 
that I did with Penn, I actually did with Andrea Robinson, who was one of the first beauty, one of the first editors that I worked with in the early days of Vogue, where I was still working a bit for other magazines, and I was working for Mademoiselle. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I was working for Mademoiselle because they this gave me like carte blanche. Anyway, so I was working with Andrea, and we were on this trip, and she is not feeling well. I end up like doing, like dressing the girls, and like doing this whole thing. She's like just well enough to say, oh, that's beautiful. And, you know, and we end up do shooting all these beauty pictures that weren't even scheduled. But George Barkington was the photographer. Mm -hmm. he, the girls looked beautiful. He said, oh, let's do some beauty. And ended up being like one of the most important issues of Mademoiselle. We were in Tahiti. In any case, though, the point of this is, Andrea was a fashion editor. That shoot turned her into a beauty editor because they thought that she, this was all Andrea. Andrea ended up with this extraordinary career as a beauty editor. And she ultimately ended up working for Vogue as a beauty editor. And, and we did gorgeous, gorgeous things together for Vogue. Um, and then that landed her at the end of the Mirabella thing. It landed her a creator director's job at Revlon. <laughs> and I mean, there were a lot of a lot of things where, yes, people were making my career, but I was making their career. It it was an incredible experience, really. I mean, looking back at it, it's. Um, you know, I mean, I obviously look at it almost in the third person. I mean, it's like, I don't even know that, that that's me, you know, that lived that life, that did that, because I'm so into what I do now. Mm -hmm. And because, um, you know, when I, when I did walk away from it and I started taking photos, I absolutely would not. I only, in the very beginning of taking photos, did I do the hair and makeup and the photograph. To, because when I was first starting to put together a portfolio, and it's Jeanette Hallen, who was this gorgeous, young Scandinavian model that I actually made her career. And uh, because I, I was working with her while I was still doing hair and makeup. And then and we became friends, so when I started testing, I asked her to work with me. And we did just such beautiful pictures together. And the, she showed those pictures and it really made people start to think of her seriously as a woman because she had always done the younger stuff. But still, I had gotten her jobs with Penn where we did this campaign for, um, for Japan. It was a, I can't remember what makeup company it was, but it was a Japanese makeup company. And have you ever heard of Eiko? Eiko was the biggest art director female art director in Japan. So she was more than an art director. She was a creative director. She was a, a producer. She was like world renowned. If you look, uh, go on Amazon um, and see if you can get this book, Eiko, uh, it's this huge coffee table book. And it's, it's incredible. So Eiko told Penn 
that she wanted the two of us to do this whole abstract makeup campaign based on the things I had done for Vogue. And so I got him to book Jeanette. And, uh, and it, was, it was fantastic. Um, and one of the very last shoots that I did with Penn was absolutely one of the most beautiful fashion shoots that I ever did with him, with Lauren Hutton. And it was for um, Basili. Mm. And um, the pictures were just gorgeous. But at that point, we were all so seasoned, you know, and it was like nobody had to say anything. It was like, just do it, you know? And Penn really, I was one of the few people that he didn't give any direction to. And it didn't matter how long it took me to, to get ready, he would wait. After that, the silly job. Again, I was, I was winding down anyway, so it wasn't really, wasn't really hitting home to me that Penn wasn't booking me. And then all of a sudden, and, and my agent, my agent had a different agent at that point, and he was friends with Penn's son and would like, you know, visit them on the weekends at their house in Long Island and stuff. So finally, it, like, I'm thinking to myself, God, the last thing that I did with Penn was like gorgeous, like, you know, and it was so easy. And I mean, it was like, what could be the problem? So I said, Dan, you know, when you're with Penn on the weekend, can you just sort of feel him out and like find out, is there a problem? Like, why isn't he booking me? And so when Dan felt comfortable to ask him, he said, Dan, he said, truthfully, Rick is the best person at what he does that I have ever, ever worked with in my entire career. He said, there is no one that can handle what he will handle. And I'm telling you what he said to my agent. And he said, and there's no one who can do from just beautiful, beautiful woman to the most difficult abstract, you know, makeup thing and, and totally make everything new every time you work with him. He said he's the only one. But you know what? I'm getting too old. He said, and Rick, sometimes we don't start shooting until almost five o'clock. And I gotta go home. He said, I missed my train because he takes the train to Long Island. Mm -hmm. And he said, really, he said, that's the only problem. He said, I just need to be able to like get things done. And, you know, and he said, and I don't want to interrupt Rick. I don't want to tell him that he has to rush. And that was it. So, I mean, what better way yeah. to, to not work with anybody anymore, you know? And again, I started taking my own photos. That was really probably a, one of the highlights too of hearing what people, at least some people, really thought of, of what I did. And, and to, you know, being acknowledged really for that 20 years of um, doing that. And, um, and then, you know, when I started taking my own photo, photos and not doing the hair and makeup anymore, and, and people said to me, well, 
and it was really difficult, by the way. I went from earning like $10,000 a week to nothing. And I owned this like castle in the sky. It was the entire 31st floor of a Gothic skyscraper. My studio was my home. It's like this place. Like I could mm-hmm. shoot, shoot amazing fashion photographs in here. Yeah. And, um, and the light in that place was equally beautiful because it was an entire floor. So it didn't matter what time you wanted to shoot. And in any case though, you can imagine what the overhead was on that. And I was getting jobs, but, but the problem came down to that Alexander Lieberman blocked my career as a photographer. Absolutely blocked me. <laughs> so any time, and what happened was that because I'm the perfectionist that I am, and sometimes that works against you, I, when I was, when I was putting my portfolio of my photographs together, I wasn't sure that it was good enough for Lieberman. I thought if I'm going to, if I'm going to show Lieberman my work with, with the hopes of shooting for Vogue, it better be something I really completely believe is good enough. Well, but I started, I, I showed it to some other editors, I mean to some editors rather, and I did a job that Photo District News saw, and they ended up doing this huge article on me. Rick Gillette starting over at the top. It was this big two and a half page, and the magazine was this big in those days, Photo District News, and so they do this huge feature on me. And that's what they called it, Rick Gillette starting over at the top, because I lived at the top of this building. I left at the top of my career. There was this whole thing that the writer like put together. And they interviewed Lauren Hutton. They interviewed, because by that point I had photographed her also. And um, it interviewed Hero, you know, about my transitioning in, and, uh, and Hero said to them in, in the interview, look, he said, there was no question that Rick was not going to do hair and makeup forever. Rick's evolution from what he started out doing as a hair and makeup artist to like what he ended up doing, he said, just showed that he, was, he would be moving on to, you know, other things. And he said, and he said, I've seen Rick's photographs. I've seen them since he like first started taking them. And he said he should be shooting covers for magazines. And Lauren Hutton said this other like really weird stuff, but great stuff that actually had to do not only with my abilities as a hair and makeup artist, but my sexuality. That she starts the hurt the interview off by when I met Rick Gillette, he was like this totally new wave guy. I had never met anyone like him. She said all of she said most of the hair and makeup people you know, were gay and like, you know, you just didn't really think about them as like a guy, you know, you, you know, they, you worked with them, you loved them and all of that, but Rick was sexy. <laughs> and, you know, so she says this in the fucking magazine. And then later I said, Lauren, what were you talking about? She said, you don't understand. She said, you were not like any of the other gay guys in the business. You know, you 
you could have been you could have been straight. But the fact that you were so comfortable with being gay, and the fact that you know men were like all over you, but it was almost like you know being with a friend who. Um, well, it was that friend, but she, he, she was meant like, it's like being with a woman friend who's like a man magnet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I like, I'm thinking, really? <laughs> you know, anyway, though. Um, but the, the thing is that, so I guess that there was no way that I could talk to you about my career without talking about that part of my life also mm -hmm. because it was another part of this sort of um, this sort of planned out life for me that sort of just just kept falling into place and like turning into another novel and then another novel and then you know and um, and at the same time I was absolutely doing what I loved. I, I was called all kinds of things. I was, I mean, some people said I was the most difficult person in the business. And not because I was nasty, not, you know, not because I was not professional. I mean, if I was late for a job, it was like 15 minutes. But, and not because I was a drug addict, which a lot of the people were in those days, I was difficult because I would not let anybody else work below the top of their level. And, and again, I didn't, that wasn't obvious to me. I didn't know I was doing that. And I didn't know that until, um, again, when I did my last shoot with Jade Hobson for Vogue, um, with Wayne Mazur and Christy Turnington. And Christy, by the way, I just adore. And um, she was so young, she must have been 17 or something. And so like at the end of this thing, oh no, no, that wasn't the last job, I'm sorry. That was with Polly. But then, um, that was one of my last jobs with Polly. But then with Jade, it was again with Wayne Mazur and it was Carrie, Otis? Yes. Oh my God. And it was with Wayne. And on that, Jade called me before and she said, Rick, this is going to be my last shoot. She said, I want to work with the two best people that I worked with throughout my career. She said, would you mind working with John Sahab? And I had known John. He was, he was a very close friend of Corkin's. Uh, you know, would you mind doing this shoot with Carrie Otis and Wayne Mazur and John and myself? And she said, it's mainly going to be beauty. Um, it, you know, we're going to be at the beach. Um, so I think you, you know, I, I think it, you'll be okay with it. And I said, absolutely. It's, you know, it's our last thing together. You know, if it uh, makes you happy, yeah, let's do it. And the pictures were so gorgeous. I mean, so gorgeous. The hair, the hair was not an important thing in it at all. It was her face. <laughs>
the makeup that I did was just all dewy and glowing and bronzy and um, the light was just so beautiful. It was really, it was like the perfect end to like pictures uh, of my makeup in Vogue. Mm -hmm. So it was great. But anyway, so after that shoot, I get a note from Grace thanking me for like all of the years of our working together. And she said, you have no idea how many times you saved me on, on shoots. She said, you were the one that would not let anyone that go get lazy, mm -hmm. would not let anyone not do their best work. She said, you were the only one that I saw, you know, get Helmut Newton and, you know, <laughs> people that normally, you know, they loved their hair and makeup people, but, you know, you, you influenced, she said, the story of O never would have been the story of O without you. And it was true. And, um, but again, while all of this was going on, to me, this was all work. I, my greatest fear was that the next shoot would not be as good as the one before. Because Polly Mellon, early in my career, had said to me, you're only as good as your last sitting. Remember that. And that really like hit home with me. And it was, it was when, early, early on, when we had done that beautiful Palm Beach thing with Karen Graham, and when you know we ended that shoot, and then we got back, and um, and she said how beautiful the photos were, and that Grace loved them, and everything, and, and we got a cover out of it, and everything. But she said, "But remember, you're only as good as your last sitting." That she was, I mean, she really was. Um, so unbelievably instrumental in, in a sense, creating Richelet um, and Vogue. Because, I mean, I was the first person that I know of, that a hair and makeup person that they actually had photographed by a photographer and, and introduced me to their readers in, in this like incredible photo. Still one of the most amazing photographs anybody ever took of me. But I'm sorry I got a little emotional because it, that really hit home to me. Like, I mean, maybe if she had never said that to me, I wouldn't have taken every job as, um, I wouldn't have necessarily realized the importance of every job. Mm -hmm. And it didn't have to be that important to everyone. But it had to be that important if you wanted to be who they wanted you to be. Yeah. And that was it. And, and also, when the thing is that when Lieberman wouldn't work with me as a photographer, so that meant that Jade couldn't book me, you know, when she was working for Mirabella, but she couldn't book me because I had not been uh, approved by you know, the God, uh, even though she wasn't working with him anymore, 
But if I wasn't good enough for Lieberman, then I couldn't shoot photographs for me, Mirabella, even though Grace wanted me to shoot for them because of pictures she saw of Lauren Hutton that I did. I mean, there was one thing after another where I, I was up for jobs <laughs> that Avedon was up for. There, there were, I'm talking about advertising jobs, that there, it would be, they would bring in like a huge amount of books at the advertising agencies and um, and they would have the book like for, I didn't have an agent I couldn't get an agent as a photographer so everything I did I had to do like on my own so but uh, so my book would go out for, for a job and it could have been for Calvin Klein it could have been for you know Revlon whoever it was and um, so they'd have the book and they'd have it like there for like a week and I would call up the art director and say, well, you know, like, should I pick up my book? And they would say, oh, no, 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 you're, you know, we're down to like the last 20 photographers. And I'm thinking, well, how many people, books did they, he said, you know, and you're one of them. So I'd say, okay, just be patient. So I'd call back a few days later. Okay, it's down to you, Avedon, and Demacia. And I'm thinking, <laughs> Fine. So it's time I get the job, and I've, practically every time that that would happen, Avedon would get the job. And if Avedon didn't want the job, Patrick got it, because they were a known commodity. They were so if you, you know, if you were not doing an average, if you were an art director at an advertising firm, you knew that if you told your client that you had Avedon who was willing to do the job mm. or something, you know, that was, that's what they needed. Even though they said your pictures are so beautiful. There's, I want you to do this, but I don't, I can't hire you. And um, do you know who Rochelle Udell is? No. Oh, check out Rochelle Udell because she was Lieberman's right hand for many years um, at Condé Nast. Several times Rochelle wanted me to work for magazines that she was in charge of. Like, like um, they, bought this, they bought this magazine called New Woman mm -hmm. and they were going to try to make it a success. And So they gave it to Rochelle and she wanted me to shoot covers for that. And, um, and then there were other things that she wanted me to shoot. Every time that she would suggest it to Lieberman, he would say, absolutely not. And, but he would never tell her why. I mean, she called me up, she said, Rick, you know that I want you to do this. You know it's not anything to do with your work. But, you know, basically, he's my boss. And he's not giving me the go-ahead. Mm -hmm. And this went on for like a few years. And um, so the fact that I ended up doing as much work as I did, um, and I ended up shooting the whole campaign for Diesel Jeans. I shot, for, I shot one job for Calvin Klein, a AX, um, like really good stuff. I don't know that any one photographer was a, a big influence on my work. Um, I mean, certainly influenced 
by Avedon and by Newton, but also the, the people that did more natural work also, like Elgore, mm -hmm. um, Wayne Mazur. Um, but I think really what it comes down to, my biggest, inf my biggest influence was movies, mm -hmm. it's Hollywood. So that's really it. I mean, I think that each, each photo uh, could be part of a scene from a film. And it wasn't about technique. Yeah. It wasn't about how we, what lights you used or what camera you used or the lens. It was really just that way of seeing. Like, I knew when the light was beautiful. And I knew when it needed to be beautiful in that way mm -hmm. or when it needed to be beautiful in that way, <laughs> you know? Um, it was all about, it, it, came, it really goes right back to why I became a hair and makeup artist was that I, I wanted to create images of, that were people, not just fashion photographs. Well, you saw the pictures, I mean, the early pictures that I did with Hutton in Paris. Yeah. I mean, of course, Avedon took those photographs, but it was us, the three of us working together that created who that woman was in those photographs. And, um, and, and you know, and Polly, so when I started doing my own photos, it really was more about the direction with the person. It was more about my relationship with who I was photographing. Mm -hmm. Newton would give people a lot of direction, and Avedon certainly gave a lot of direction, but more so on location um, than in the studio. You know, again, it was just really about transform transformation. I mean, when these people saw their photos, I mean, even, I mean, Hutton, who had been photographed a million times, and she just loved this photograph. She said, you know, you just captured a moment of me that, you know, first, first of all, I mean, she's smoking in this shot, which she unfortunately did smoke in those days. I mean, she, I guess she ultimately quit, but, but it was a, what she loved about it was that spontaneous moment. When I look at these, the light reminds me the most of some horse things and also like Harrell or something, you know? Yeah. Exactly. Harrell, that's it. I only worked with Harrell once. Um, and it was like, you know, at the end of his career. Well, I mean, they, first of all, I used tungsten light a lot. Mm -hmm. So I used movie lights. And so when did you decide to sort of shift from photography into interior design? 2000. This is Laura, just popping in for a moment to explain that this is where the sound quality suffers. The two of us both needed fresh air and a snack, but unfortunately my recorder picked up all of the ambient noise. I've included it, as it provides a conclusion for Rick's story, bringing you up to date with his gallery and current life. How did you come up with the idea to open the gallery? I had been... I had been rescuing, um, and, you know, collecting by rescuing, um, so much furniture and, and furniture-like things over the years that I mean I had two two huge I still have uh, two huge storage facilities like full of things mm -hmm. and I mean my intention always was to ultimately redo them and sell them uh, I thought in a smaller venue 
I mean, originally I thought it was going to be in Manhattan or Brooklyn, but that became painfully, it became painfully obvious that that would be impossible. So these two friends of mine, this couple, who's, I had, I had done their apartment, and, um, and also the woman who's an art dealer, and I, I had done her gallery also. So we, we were quite close, spent a lot of time together. And one weekend they just said, you know, you've, you, you've got to get out of yourself. <laughs> we're going upstate to look for a house for the summer, and you're coming with us. I said, I'm not coming with you, I hate upstate New York. I said, I said I, when I left Rome, New York, <laughs> It was because I didn't want to be there. Mm -hmm. And they said, oh, no, 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 you've got to come. So I did. And one thing led to another, and I was like there every weekend. I had seen this space. It was an art gallery that a Russian artist had. Elizabeth and I had gone into that gallery on one of our first weekends here when we did our like first walk. Mm -hmm. Elizabeth looks at me and she said, oh my God, this place was made for you. Because in a way it's a bit like, you know, like the big place that I had in the financial district in terms of, in terms of scale and you know, the whole open plan. And I said, yeah, if I ever lived in Hudson, I want to live here. When we said that, I mean, I mean neither of us imagined I was ever going to end up in there. And the realtor was showing me all these places that were totally not right for me because it had to be, I mean, it would have been great if it was on the, on the street level, but it had to be some place that I could live and work. Mm -hmm. You know, we're about to give up and we're getting down to this part of the Warren Street. And I noticed a sign on the door of my, my now, now building for lease on the door that went up to my space looked at the realtor and I said, what about that? And she said, well, it's not my listing, but I can call and, you know, see if we can see it. I said, I don't have to see it. I said, if I can live and work there and it's affordable, I'll take it. So that's how I ended up there. There's only one problem with it. And if people come in, they're so overwhelmed immediately by the space. But they, first thing they say is, Oh my God, this is incredible space. Yeah. You know, and you really want them to say, Oh my God, look at that painting. Yeah. You know, and that's all the more reason why the shows that I do have to be like really, they have to like hold up, mm -hmm. if not overpower the space. And again, it comes down to my whole sense of space and arrangement and, you know, the whole thing of like in a photo, you know, it's it's all about kind of where you put the person. Yeah. Um, composition is so important. Even if you're working in a white studio, you know, it's how you compose that person's body language. Choosing what it is that I want to show, and um, and hanging it, and all of that. And, and it's still all about transformation. Yeah, definitely. And transformation and beauty is what's what, like, what, 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 you know, right. line through everything that you've done. Yeah, even in terms of my own person. I mean, I, I had to actually kind of, um, kind of 
try to see how other people saw me mm -hmm. and and work to maintain that and um, and it's a gift and a curse I mean it, it's a terrible thing for people way more beautiful or attractive or whatever yeah. uh, who, whose life depend on that luckily my life didn't really depend on it it was um, an advantage yeah. and really I'm not a businessman I mean I am you know kind of <laughs> by default but I'm an art I'm an artist <laughs> mm -hmm. and um, so I mean I do everything that I know how to do to um, you know, to try to promote this as a business. Yeah. Um, but I don't think in those terms, really. Like, I don't think about, okay, so what's the bottom line here? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, somebody asked me, like, okay, so what's, so what's your game plan you know, in an interview? Um, you know, like, what do you see for the future, you know? And I said, I don't know that I have a game plan. I don't know that I've ever had a game plan, really. Maybe my, my, maybe my most obvious game plan was leaving Syracuse to work for Vogue magazine, you know? But after that, it was like one creative thing led to another, mm -hmm. you know? And, and, and it wasn't that it was not thought about. Um, it's just that, I don't know, I mean, I, I think that if you allow it to, a life builds, yeah. you know, and it branches out. And, um, and it doesn't always revolve around money. So, I mean, that's a big part of, you know, who I am. And I suppose that some people would say struggle with, but we'll see. I mean, I think little by little, I'm getting the reputation in this area, you know, for having, well, a one-of-a-kind experience mm -hmm. for people in the area. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's what I'm counting on. I always ask people this, but what, what are you most proud of in your life? That I'm still here. <laughs> to be honest, millions of people that, are, that lost their lives during my reign, if you will. Mm -hmm. I mean, my best friend, my architect from California, you know, died of AIDS. I mean, the people, the, the geniuses, the uh, unbelievably wonderful people that were lost, and I'm here. And again, I mean, it's not... It's not like it's been easy. I mean, I almost died a couple of times in my life, not from that sort of incurable disease, but I'm overly sensitive, and it's really been to my detriment uh, on occasions. And I've been very rich, and I've been penniless, <laughs> and more than once. Mm -hmm. So I was never very rich again. It's been, that's been it. It's like not been like, an ongoing like same lifestyle mm -hmm. I chose to do certain things and with 
those choices are consequences. And I've had to learn to live with those. I think so. Then I guess I'm proud of that. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks again for listening to this conversation with Rick Gillette. If you are ever in Hudson, please visit FRG Objects and Designs. He has new shows up every few months that are effortlessly paired in the space with the mid-century furniture he restores and sells. Inspiring and beautiful, the gallery is a gorgeous evocation of Rick's talent for beauty. Please head to our website to see images from throughout his careers, as well as a short article. We have many wonderful conversations coming up in the next few weeks with photographers, artists, and writers. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode. All episode materials are available at ladyworld.tv and on our newsletter. See you next week.